Hello and welcome to Down with the Patriarchy. I'm Ben Richards. And I'm Elia Jo. He's as white and male as they come. And she, well, she isn't. But together, we're hoping to find out more about those marginalised composers we don't know so well. That's right. So, I had a conversation with James after listening to last week's podcast and he was like, guys, you've got to stop getting excited about the fact that you've done eight episodes. It's ridiculous. So, let's all acknowledge that we're on the ninth episode. I'll leave it at that. Oh, I thought I thought we were going to completely ignore James and just say how excited <laughs> we are that it's week nine. Oh it's my god! Week nine. It's week nine. No, but no, actually, this isn't week nine. This is week one of Ellie and Ben in the same county. Yay! So it is exciting. Me and Ellie have seen each other in person for the first time in many, many, many weeks, and Months. we're not. We're still apart. We're not in the same room because we don't live together. And so therefore that would be terribly un-COVID secure. Exactly. Um, however, we are now, you know, within, well, not earshot of each other. But I mean, I can sort of, you know, what, you're 10 minutes away by yeah. a five minute walk, 10 minute walk. It's so exciting, guys. So that's we get exciting. to see each other. You know, yeah. the worst thing was, though, I just wanted to give Ben a really big hug, but we couldn't. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I, I, I'm very lucky. I've had two jabs and I'm a bit disappointed that I haven't started glowing like an angel. <laughs> um, but that doesn't doesn't allow me to just do whatever I want to do. Very yeah. safe, Ben. Very, very safe. You'd but think we're... we're doing an ad for the NHS here, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, no, I, yes, yes. Big up the NHS. Woohoo. <laughs> and also the fact that me and Ellie were together this week meant that I could pass Ellie a very special present. Yes. Listeners, you may have seen on our Instagram story, and if you haven't, go and follow us at Pod. We had a present from the lovely Rianne Davis, yes. author of, Ben? Ernest Zisglair Anoil. Alternatively? Never so pure a sight. Wonderful. The author of that fantastic book we referred to in our episode about Morford Owen. So thank you, thank you so much for sending us some lovely books. We can't wait to get stuck in. It's a life in pictures and we just can't wait. Yeah, thank you, Rianne. It's very, very kind. She she got in touch with me over Twitter and said, oh, thank you so much for being so lovely about me and the book. And it's not really in print anymore, but please let me send you a couple of copies that I've got left at home. And I thought it was very, very kind of her. So, so lovely. Yeah. Um, but today, actually, we're breaking a bit of new ground because today is the first time we are talking about a composer from Asia, specifically East mm. Asia. But when we talk about Asian music, I think it's such a rabbit hole because there's so many different things that you can mean by Asian music and there are so exactly. many different cultures and it's so diverse. But today we are talking about a Chinese-American composer who I'd never heard of and I'm not sure if Ellie had heard of. Had you heard of this person Only- before? Only from doing a bit of research into other Asian composers, but never before that. But the thing is, is that this guy is like Chinese-American musical royalty. We are talking about the composer Bright Sheng. Bright Sheng is, well, a quote attributed to him, I think it was that he's 100% American and 100% Chinese, but that he feels more American now because of the melting pot of cultures that American society is, which I thought was really nice. And it's so nice to hear like a positive affirmation about the multiculturalism of a country like America when we hear so much negativity. But Bright Chang, I mean, what to say about him? He was born on the 6th of December 1955 in Shanghai. 
And what's quite interesting about his early life is that he grew up during the Cultural Revolution. Now, I am no scholar of Chinese history, and I don't pretend to be, but having done a quick bit of research, basically the Cultural Revolution, which was sort of 1966 to 1976, was a purging of capitalist ideas and and things related to anything that was considered culturally capitalist with Mao's philosophy of a communist society was got rid of. And so whilst Bright had a piano at home during his early years as, as a child, it was taken away by the authorities during the Cultural Revolution. So oh, no. um, apparently he, he <laughs> I love this, initially he was quite pleased because it meant that he didn't have to practice the piano anymore. What a mood. <laughs> what a mood. But after about a year, he said he heard some, some music on the piano and realised that he really missed playing the piano so he would play in school because there was still a piano in school and because of his piano playing abilities rather than being sent into the countryside as many Chinese people were from the cities to go and work with the peasants and the farmers to live a completely different life the wife of Chairman Mao was very much passionate about the arts and she wanted to set up systems where arts were correctly funded in China and so good so, well, I mean, yes, I mean, it's an interesting one because actually we can't pretend that this communist regime is anything other than an awful thing and many, many people were killed. But actually, Cheng himself admits that if it wasn't for the Cultural Revolution, it is unlikely that he would have pursued a career in music. So he was sent to the Qinghai province, which used to be a part of Tibet. And this is a melting pot of many different minority Chinese cultures, Tibetans, Mongolians and Chinese Muslims. And one of the things that they had to keep the community together was the playing of folk music. And that was kind of their only form of entertainment because they didn't really, really have much else. Um, but basically, it turned out that he was the best pianist there. And he spent a lot of time playing the piano and playing percussion. And I think started to write music as well and was absorbing this folk music. Then in 1978, when the Chinese universities were allowed to reopen, he was one of the first people that was admitted into the Shanghai Conservatory of Music. And then in 1982, he made his journey to America. That was the time when he decided that the time was right to, to move to America and to forge his career there. He moved to New York and really hasn't looked back since. Uh, looking on his website, I mean, the biography is long. I'm not going to read all of it because if I read this list of names, we'd be here for ages. But I'm just going to read some of the orchestras that have performed Sheng's music. Okay. So, well, or orchestras and operas. So we have the San Francisco Opera, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, the Santa Fe Opera, the New York City Opera, the New York City Ballet, the San Francisco Ballet, the New York Philharmonic. The Boston Symphony, the Chicago Symphony, the Cleveland Orchestra, the Philadelphia oh Orchestra, the San Francisco Symphony, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, Minnesota Orchestra, St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, National Symphony Orchestra, Detroit Symphony Orchestra, <laughs> Houston Symphony Orchestra, Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, Dallas Symphony Orchestra, Seattle Symphony Orchestra, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, San Diego Symphony Orchestra, Toronto Symphony Orchestra, Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. Those are only the orchestras in North America. Oh there's, my gosh. There's another list for Europe, and then <laughs> which is quite long. Oh my gosh. And then there's another 
pretty long list of of um asian orchestras as well i was um, thinking is ben actually just reading out a list of every orchestra, orchestra. in every state of the u.s yeah <laughs> no but literally go on his website there's a brilliant biography there and then just to talk about people that he's worked with we've got leonard bernstein michael tilson thomas leonard slatkin maron Olsop, who else can i see thomas dasgard zachary oromo yo-yo ma the list oh goes gosh. on and on and on so in america he's sort of royalty in the world of kind of chinese american music um to the point where actually in, in 1999 he was commissioned by the white house at the invitation of president bill clinton to create a new work honouring the visiting Chinese premier at the time. So the resulting work was the three songs of Pippa and Cello. So, you know, this guy literally has gone from living in communist China and, you know, being to have his, having his piano taken away from him as a young boy to making his way to America and forging a really, really successful career. He was the first composer in residence for the New York City Ballet. And Very cool. Also served as the composer in residence for the Lyric Opera of Chicago from 1989 to 1992. And I mentioned Bernstein earlier. He spent the summer at Tanglewood in 1985 as a um, sort of conducting student. And he was mentored by Bernstein, taught by Bernstein on that course, and then became Bernstein's assistant and Bernstein became his mentor until the end of Bernstein's life in 1990. And I believe that Sheng actually orchestrated some of Bernstein's music as well. So they had a really, really close bond. And actually, interestingly, one of the things about Sheng that characterizes his music is his fusion of Chinese and Asian folk melodies and folk traditions with Western orchestration and Western harmony and all that kind of stuff. I, and- I got quite Bernstein vibes from some of the things I listened yeah. to with the slapsticks and stuff like that. But we'll get onto that later. And it was Bernstein that was one of the few people that said to Sheng, look, this fusion is a thing that you can do. I think a lot of people said to him that it wasn't a good idea, mm. that, that these these two things didn't work together very well. And actually, Bernstein was the one that said to him, no, you should do this. And he was inspired by the work Bella Bartok, who obviously we know as somebody who was greatly inspired by Hungarian folk yes, music. Yes, of course. And so... I suppose the difficulty is that, at least with Hungarian folk music, there is probably more of a harmonic similarity than the differences between sort of Western music and Eastern music. And I think perhaps that dissonance was what some perhaps more conservative people advising him were kind of unsure about whether it was going to work. Mm. But he pursued it, and I have to say, it works. It definitely works. Brilliantly. So, I mean, also, he's the first composer that we've looked at who's not dead. I know, um, I was thinking that. It's our first kind of very much composer. Still alive. Yeah, he's very much still alive. And it's interesting, I was thinking about this earlier. We're looking at this this composer who's actually quite well known, and a lot of his music's been performed, a lot of his music's been published, his operas are very popular. So why are we talking about him? And I think the reason why we're talking about him is because, well, first of all, we didn't know who he was. Second of all, he might be popular, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's taken him into the realm of the canon. Exactly. And I would say that he's probably a lot more popular and well-known in America than he is over here in Europe. Yes. And I think that is something that, although many, many European orchestras have performed his music, I think in America because he's an American Chinese composer and, and lives in America and teaches in America, that that's why he's he's more well-known across the pond. So I think it's definitely worth exploring his music. So some of his music that I've been listening to 
the first piece that I went and listened to was the, the Sujo Overture, which is actually one of his most recent works. It was written in August, completed in August 2019, and has just been released in February on an album of his music by the Sujo Symphony Orchestra, yeah. who commissioned this work. I got listening to that too, actually. What an amazing piece of music. It opens with very high vibrato strings and very, very luscious scoring, and it sounds like... Uh, I don't know, it sounds like the John Wilson Orchestra is performing a 1930s MGM film score. Yes, I get that entirely. It's so shimmery. Yeah, but it then moves into more traditional pentatonic scales and pentatonic harmonies. And, and actually, interesting hearing like trombones, very much a Western instrument, performing this kind of music that we would perhaps imagine in our minds being performed on traditional Chinese instruments. And then all of a sudden you're hearing this, you're hearing a, a timbre that you recognize and a sound, a type of music that whilst might be foreign to us, we kind of recognize as Asian music. But those two things brought together is a really interesting and I think exciting combination because it's not something that, that you're expecting. And Bright says himself about the piece of music that the, the whole overture is about the city and that the modernity and the past coexist and complement each other. The new regenerates the old and the integration of the two creates fresh power, ambition and inspiration. And I think as well as the time kind of merging together, it's also just cultures as you said with the trombone it's like you've dropped it right in the middle of a fantastic piece of asian art and it just it adds a completely different dimension yeah and i think he said that he wanted to try and combine those those two things you know that the the modern rhythmic vigor and the traditional nostalgia and lyrical melodies Mm. and it it's just this fabulous perhaps you know one of the things that we've been a little bit guilty of with some of the composers we've looked at is that they have been broadly tonal often romantic, mainly because of the era of the poses we've been looking at. Yeah. I wasn't humming a tune on my, you know, when I was listening to it, but it was just, it just wonderful different soundscapes and just the fact that they exist, putting them next to each other. It's a bit like that scene, you know, in Ratatouille, <laughs> you know, you know, no, it's, stay with me. Okay, okay. There's that scene in Ratatouille where he gives a meal or, or he eats, he eats a piece of cheese and then he eats a strawberry and then he puts them in together. And, and there's like and, fireworks. And yeah, and there's like fireworks. And I feel like this is kind of what this piece is. It's like you've got like your two different flavours that you might not necessarily put together. And then you put them together and then you appreciate both of them in a different way. I love that analogy. That was brilliant. I don't know where that came from, but I really like Ratatouille. So like that maybe that's not not the actual food. I know I had Ratatouille, but I, the film <laughs> is very good. It is. Um, it is, definitely. The other piece, well, there's two other pieces. One of them was the Dance Capriccio, which I think was for like a string quartet, piano, you know, piano quintet. Okay. Um, And this is apparently all based on music from the Sherpas. The Sherpas are people that I think we know probably most in the West as guides for Himalayan ascents. The, mm. the Sherpas are the guides that people use when they go up Everest and K2 and all that kind of thing. But they have their own folk music and they have dance is something that is very, very important in their culture. Yes. This piece of music is brilliant. It is brilliantly violent in places. And I was listening to it this morning on my morning walk and Englefield Green, which is just up from where we are, is a beautiful place to go for a walk. And there are people with their kids playing football and, you know, couples going for a walk and all the rest it was really really lovely but me i was there my headphones <laughs> on and what it sounded like was that somebody was demolishing a piano with a hammer it's, like it's like 
like the it's like the classical music equivalent of screamo, yes. heavy metal, punk yes. rock. I feel like she'd be a headbang, you know. <laughs> but also, I was just like my my first thought was I was like, is this called dance capriccio? Because I think if you tried to dance this, you'd break a leg. Like, it, <laughs> but it starts with this eerie open chords with the piano and strings. Then it's sort of really furious. I mean, Bright Shank characterizes it as going from slow to fast, tender to raucous, even wild. So I want to see how these people dance because, like, <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine it. It's not, you can't foxtrot to it, you know? Oh, um, oh Ben taught us how to foxtrot. That's a very cute reference. How I, lovely. I, I did. That feels like a long time ago. But I, yeah, that was back in December. Back in December. The other one I looked at was Seven Tunes Heard in China, which is for solo cello. This was written for Yo-Yo Ma and edited by Yo-Yo Ma. And the wow. reason why I wanted to bring this one up is because, Ellie, if you go and listen... Did you listen to this no, one? No, I didn't listen to this one. If you listen to number five, do you remember Du Du Dang? Yes. The second of the two Chinese folk songs. Yes. Which isn't, which isn't a Chinese folk song. Yes. So, people of the world um, who are listening to us, why don't you tell everyone about the concert that we did? How long ago was that? That was a long time ago. Jan- January 2020. Yeah, bizarre. So, in January last year, we were invited to partake in a fantastic, but probably one of the most difficult concerts we've ever had. It was right at the beginning of January. And bearing in mind, we left for our Christmas break in, when was it? Kind of mid-December. So we'd had yeah. no time singing together. So Rupert gave us a book and said book was full of Chinese folk songs in, I think it was Cantonese, wasn't it? Cantonese, yeah. That we had to learn all of this music, which was gorgeous folk stuff, very pentatonic, a lot of it very haunting and sparse and a lot of it just so beautiful. And we were given this music to go away and learn. And then we've had to put it together in a rehearsal and then go right into London and sing it at Queen Mary's University London. And it was for the UK China Festival. So we had to be on top form. And we had this huge audience of people who were just there listening to this choir of primarily white students singing Chinese music and putting all this effort into learning so much about their culture. And it was amazing it was so much fun to be a part of yeah it was hard it's hard work i mean i think i think we sing we sing music in so many different languages but actually there's an intonation to asian languages that we don't have in in, exactly. in the West, where you where you can say a word in a different way and it means a completely different thing different. yeah but it, interestingly one of the arrangements we did which was for the king singers which was two chinese folk songs the second one juju dang which is the fifth of the tunes heard in china but i think is actually quite deliberate because the tunes heard in china these seven tunes they're not all from china some of them are from tibet mongolia and different provinces in china and Juju Dang is actually Taiwanese. Um, and basically, it's the train is coming, it is going through the tunnel. It's just this folk song about a train. Um, and, and I was going for my walk earlier, and I was listening to this. I was listening to the whole thing. And pretty simply, Bright Sheng uses the cello in so many interesting ways, to the point where you're wondering, is this just one person playing? You know, the cello has become a piece of percussion. It play, You know, there's sort of melody and counter melody going on. And I didn't know any of these tunes except for the fifth one. And it was only when I heard it that I started to appreciate what he was doing because I was starting to sing along to the tune because I, I recognised it. But then he was taking it to place registration-wise. It was going right down to the depths of the bottom of the cello and all the way up to the top. And there was glissandi and there was pitch bending and pizzicato and all these different techniques. And also, I think one of the things I noticed 
with some of the movements of the seven folk song movement piece is that there was a much less adherence to strict this is an F-sharp, it will be an F-sharp. Mm. I think a Western harmony is very rigorous in that respect, but what Yo-Yo Ma was doing in his performance and what I imagine is dictated or suggested in the scoring is a much more fluid approach, which is much more authentic to the original folk melodies. That sounds more, brilliant. Yeah, and I think they're at times quite quite violent, quite energetic, but then at other times, just beautifully still. I, I remember thinking, I think it was number four, The Drunken Fisherman, which is just based on classical Chinese tune. And I remember thinking I could hear the birds chirping through my headphones and it was quite quiet. There wasn't a lot of road noise. And I felt completely still and completely relaxed. It was very atmospheric, actually. But then at other times then, it was you know, quite raucous and just furious flurry of energy. I will so, definitely go and give that a listen. And I'll put what, that on our stories later today so everyone can see what we're listening to. What did you listen to, Ellie? So I, <laughs> this is a funny story from Ellie not understanding Spotify again. So I was instantly drawn, don't judge me anyone, to Zodiac Tales because, you know, I'm into my Zodiac and all that. And I thought this is going to be interesting. And then I saw the words, the elep, and I thought this is going to be about an elephant. So I started listening to it. And then I was thinking, I don't think this guy understands what elephants are. Because it was, as you said, it was furious and violent and fast and aggressive. And I was thinking, elephants are so slow and ploddy and lovely. And then I, I clicked on it further to just think, one second, it is the elephant. And it was... It's about an elephant being eaten by a snake. So... (laughs) (laughs) How does that even happen? I I suppose it happens. It might be like a baby elephant and a big python kind of thing, you know? But that was just me, again, not understanding technology. But I've got to say, it gave me very Stravinsky vibes. It was really... but, But not like that, obviously. But it was constantly moving and once I realized that it wasn't about an elephant I could really hear this poor creature being attacked by a really vicious snake and Mm -hmm. it's that ability to to paint an entire situation in your head that only a handful of composers have I think you can listen to so much music and be taken by it because it's brilliant music but some just have the ability to paint pictures in your head and I, I really liked that I thought it was brilliant and then the first thing that I listened to, because I was just so drawn to the colourful album art, if I'm being completely honest, was Let Fly. Oh, right, and yeah. And the, the album art is a... It looks like a child's drawn a butterfly, and it's... Well, oh, the, no. the cover art is by Fei-Fei Sophie Sheng, oh, which gosh. sounds like that could literally be... I'm wondering whether Fei-Fei Sophie Sheng is his daughter. His daughter? Or Possibly. this is where it's really horrible, and she's actually his sister, who's a really famous artist, and I'm just a horrible person. But I think the cover-up was so cute that I was just drawn there instantly. And Let Fly is just... The only words I can think of are kind of chaos. It's just... Yeah, it's... It's brilliant. It's kind of bouncing off the walls. And I love that kind of thing, especially when we've spent so much time on this podcast looking at lovely, slushy, romantic music. It's nice to just go straight in with something completely different. And I loved it. Yeah, I think 
actually, I think the one thing for me that strikes me about a lot of his music is that he's very good at writing music that is fizzing with energy. And I really appreciate that. I, but I also think not to discredit the fact that when there are moments where he keeps things really still, often lets the tradition that he's writing in speak for itself. But I think I think that ability to write with such Stravinsky and energy. I mean, I think he cites Shostakovich as one of his influences as well. So I think it's an impressive way of composing and very different, but but actually quite I think quite approachable to the uninitiated. Yes, I think, I think so. I think because it's not completely wacky. No, it's not so atonal that you can't follow anything that's going on. It's still got a tonal center. You've still got. As you said, you've got these folk song influences, which are still definitely there. And yeah. as you said, actually, the best person I can com- compare him to in my head is Bartok. Because yeah. I remember when I was younger, I was given a piece of Bartok to play on the violin. And I was fuming with my teacher. I was like, why have you given me this? This is awful. And now <laughs> five years later, you hear it and you can follow the folk melodies. You can still see where he's explored them further and brought in his own new found influences and it's not just folk songs it's all inspired by all sorts of things and i think that's quite similar to bright shank yeah i think also you know our only experience of chinese music and east asian music has been arrangements of folk tunes for choir and actually i think what's really nice about what bright shank does is he's quite revolutionary in in the way in which he combines his western training and his the eastern traditions and he, he talks about how he was taught western composition in china but he said being taught western composition in china is a bit like having a chinese over here it's not very authentic However, he said at least over here, I mean, being over here, being America, but also I think this applies to Britain, at least over here, the cooks are Chinese. Whereas in China, the people who are teaching you Western composition and Western music history are Chinese. And so I think his understanding of Western music came from his time in America. Yes. And studying, further studying in America. But I, I thought that was quite a funny That's analogy. a very funny little anecdote. But I, yeah, I mean, yeah. The only other comparison I've got, other than the folk music, is a composer called Yiruma. I hope I pronounced that correctly. So he's a South Korean pianist and composer. And Mm. you might not know his name, but I guarantee if you were to sit down and listen to the piece River Flows in You, you would know exactly what it was. And you would know exactly who he was and the kind of music he composes. And this isn't to say anything against him, but it's very Iron Aldi kind of... It just happens. Yeah. So I think that there's also a preconception of East Asian music as being simple. And so it's kind of either folk songs or easy to play piano stuff. Yeah. But what happens when you've got a composer like Bright Sheng, who's got so much vi- vigor? Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah. Vigor and this vivacious energy and this fizzing brilliant everything is thought out and completely thought through and it's all just a really beautifully organized chaos yeah i think it just challenges your preconceptions which is what we're what we're here for yeah i also think as well that i found myself thinking today right well you know it goes without saying that when you hear a piece of chinese folk song i think you immediately know what it is and i think it's quite easy to sort of shut off at that point and in some of the slower movements for the the cello folk songs i was like right okay what is it that makes these melodies so so wonderfully peaceful mm. and there's there's a dignity to them there's this um they're they're quite unassuming they don't make a fuss 
And I think actually European music is often quite fussy and a bit vulgar. I agree. Actually, it's not very vulgar. I think it's it's quite tasteful. It's quite simple. It speaks of of a simpler life. You know, I'm talking about simplicity in, in a positive sense here. You know, I think it does sort of it feels just very content and and very wonderful because you're not thinking about being overwhelmed with positive or negative emotions. You're just in a state of total relaxation. And I think that's really quite something. But then to combine that with this thumping, driving... Violence. Violent composition. What a combination. I think and he's a composer who just really achieves fusion of everything. Yeah. Of serenity and violence, of cultures, of old and new. And I think it works. It really works. Yeah, absolutely. So, first Asian composer, first alive composer. Where are we going? Left or right? Well, I'll tell you a funny thing, Ben. When I started listening to The Elephant, as I thought it was then called, I was like, oh my God, this guy doesn't understand elephants. I'm swiping left. But then having having realised what was actually going on and realising the fact that everything was just painted in my head as soon as I read what it actually was. And yeah. after hearing more about his life, it's a definite firm right. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I think it's it's wonderful, wonderful music and it's challenging and it's it's not always sit down, put headphones on and relax yes i'm swiping right but like with like a firm like you know if you could swipe right with like a saber rather than a above your finger (laughs) brilliant anyway yeah so that was a good one i like that something completely different something completely different and uh, well hopefully interestingly enough actually when ellie said that she had this list of uh, asian composers my first first thought was not east asian my first thought was that we were going to be maybe looking at um Indian composers or composers from that part of Asia. And so therefore, I'm really excited to continue to explore Asian composers and, and the different nuances of, of what such a diverse continent. I completely agree. This is fab. I like this one. Yeah. Oh, let's do it again, Ben. <laughs> let's do it. Same time next week. Same time next week. So, guys, thank you so much for listening. But please make sure you go and rate us on Apple Music preferably five stars would be absolutely fab um, if you're going to give us anything less than that don't bother just send us a message um also subscribe to us on spotify follow us do whatever you can head over to at patriarchy pod on instagram and give us a follow interact with our posts you'll see lots of hopefully lovely drawings of all of these composers who we've looked at so far and yeah. just keep keep listening tell your friends yeah. you know Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. Have a good week, everyone. See you then. Bye.